Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Andrew Turner, Valley Wine Merchants in Newburgh. It's August 7th, 2020. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, it's a pleasure. Uh, first question for you is, what, why food and wine? What got you into food and wine? You know, I, I grew up um, in a family, uh, I was surrounded by uh, the Latin side of my family. My, 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 my mom's side of the family is uh, Mexican and Puerto Rican, and that's the side that I knew growing up. And uh, so from a very early age, um, I was always in the kitchen cooking with my grandmother. I was, uh, I loved to eat. Um, so that side of the family was just um, uh, appreciators of food. Mm-hmm. And so that was just the culture and, uh, um, and the energy I grew up in. And um, my grandmother was a, was a huge influence on uh, the early part of my life. Um, I spent a lot of time with my grandmother. My mom was a single mom raising two kids, and um, so we would we would spend uh, you know, weekends with my grandma as my mom was putting herself through school or working the three jobs. And uh, my grandmother, you know, I, I have vivid, vivid vivid memories of waking up in the morning to smells coming from the kitchen that kind of called you into the kitchen. And my grandmother, uh, incredibly warm. A woman, uh, you know, showed her love through food, and and um, and I guess my curiosity with cooking, uh, you know, I was always uh, I was always the the one that was curious as to what made that so good, you know, and and, and uh, uh, wanting to cook with my grandmother, and um, so that's what initially drew me to food, and and as an early in my early childhood, um, you know, ten. You know, eight to ten years old, I, I kind of found myself gravitating towards cooking shows. Uh, you know, the Julia Childs or the, um, you know, the, the sort of personalities that were cooking on PBS at the time, and and um, and just became curious myself and and was dipping my toe in the water of um, trying to recreate what they were mm-hmm. what they were cooking. You know, the frugal gourmet was sort of famously uh, one of my early influences and. <clears throat> One of the uh, stories I love to tell, and, and it's, it's a story my family tells often, is uh, you know I would call my mom at her at her job and give her a list of ingredients because I was going to cook for the family you know tonight and you know, ten years old and and you know, famously would give her a list of these at that time exotic ingredients right and I was going to make quiche and, and you know so I need Gruyere I need beautiful eggs and I need leeks and I need all these things and. You know, those aren't hard to find these days, but back then, you know, um, those weren't commonplace ingredients. And and I, I, I just have a rush of love for my mom because, you know, as a single mom with not a lot of money, not a lot of time, uh, you know, she uh, she didn't blink an eye. She never said no. She never, um, you know, she would hunt for ingredients and bring them home the best that she could. And, 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 and you know, I, I had fun cooking. I had fun cooking for my family and for friends, you can imagine friends in junior high school and high school that got a kick out of there and come stay over at my house and I was gonna cook dinner. <laughs> um, and so that's kind of where my spark of uh, food and then the segue into 
professional kitchens um, at the age of 14. Um, my mom enrolled me in a uh, uh, sort of after-school program that was, the premise was, um, as I remember it, the premise was, so you think you have an interest in X, Y, and Z, fill in the blank. And I'm not, I'm not even sure how many categories there were, but one of them was cooking. Mm -hmm. And so this program, it was called uh, uh, Coastline Regional Occupational Program. This was in Southern California where I grew up. And so after school, um, my mom would drive me to this classroom, uh, you know, take a break out of her day at work and drive me to this classroom. So there was multiple weeks of basic instruction of how not to cut your finger off and how to do basic tasks. And, and then, you know, this was again at 14 years old. And then the latter part of this program was they, they placed you in a professional kitchen to give you a little real world view of if you think you want to do this, then, then let's look at it on a deeper level and see if it really is an interest. And just how, just as uh, luck would have it, I was placed into the fanciest French restaurant imaginable um, in Newport Beach, California, this French-owned hotel um, called Le Meridian Hotel. And at that time, this was in the, uh, sort of been somewhere around, uh, you know, 1987, something like that. Um, at that time, Meridian Hotel, every Meridian Hotel had a gourmet restaurant. And every one of those gourmet restaurants had a consulting chef from France. They were either two or three Michelin star chefs from France who were the consulting chef of the restaurant. This is a complete world that I, I had no idea of. I, again, I'm just, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a young kid in high school that fell into the situation. For all I know, the other students got placed into uh, Marie Callender's or, right? I mean, I have no idea. <laughs> And it was love at first sight for me. I mean, it was absolutely love at first sight. Um, having grown up without a father, I very, very quickly fell in love with the regimen and the structure of the kitchen and um, and the hierarchy. I, I loved that you know there was the all-powerful chef and then the sous chefs below that and then the station chefs and then on and on and on and on and on down. And I was the low of the low, and I loved it. I loved being. Um, just the smallest part of this incredible world. And I'm seeing ingredients that I've never seen before, um, fish flown in from France and the most incredible produce and truffles and all this stuff that I had no idea of. And so that really accelerated my interest in, in cooking and, and cemented that I think this is my path in life. Not only was it an interest, but it was an infatuation. And I had to see where this was going to go. And to be frank, I was never the best student. Um, you know, I, 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 I tended to lose focus pretty quick at, in school. Um, but lo and behold, right about my sophomore year is when, is when I started as an unpaid employee through this program and then got hired on as a paid employee. Um, right about that time is when my focus in school really turned around and junior senior uh, years of high school I something clicked I found my purpose in life uh, and I think I found confidence uh, honestly um, in life and and then there was a real a really incredible fateful event where um, uh, there was a guest chef that flew down from San Francisco 
to recreate his restaurant and his menu at this ho at this restaurant that I worked at in the Meridian Hotel. And his name was Hubert Keller, and he had this restaurant in San Francisco called Fleur de Lis. So I meet this incredibly charismatic guy who my memory was like a Swiss clock. His organization of, he flew down with coolers of everything organized to a T. And all we did as a restaurant was the final execution of each dish. But his organization was meticulous and his demeanor was calm as a cucumber, the most incredible professional I've ever met in my life. And um, so after the week, it just so happened that I had enrolled in culinary school in San Francisco. A couple of weeks prior had been accepted. And at the end of the week, I walked into the office as he's saying his goodbyes and thank yous to everyone. And I introduced myself formally. And I, and I said, just so happened, chef, uh, I'll be in San Francisco um, in a couple of months. And I'd love to come by your restaurant and say hello. And he was very, very warm and gracious. Again, I'm the lowest of the low, you know, assistant cook. And he was so warm and gracious. And he gave me his card. He said, please stop by. I'd love to show you the restaurant. And, and so literally, uh, I get to San Francisco, my first day of school after school. Um, you know, I'm 19 years old, completely naive. I moved from very conservative, very completely whitewashed safe, Orange County, California to San Francisco. And after the first day of school, I, I have my, uh, my box of knives and I walk straight up the street and down Sutter Street and I'm gonna go find the restaurant because my mission is I have to cement this. And, and I walk right in the front door, incredibly formal, beautiful, gilded dining room. And I walk up to the host stand and I say, I'm, I'm here to see Chef Keller and <laughs> I have an appointment. And you know, they're looking at me like, what is this kid doing, right? And so they show me over to the bar, very gracious. And out comes the chef and, and, uh, and, and I remind him of our conversation and kind of sparks his memory. And he says, oh, well, really nice for you to come by and say thank you so much thanks for coming by and say hello and it's right before a busy service and so he's trying to excuse himself and I said you know well, before you go I wanted to ask you if, if if I could come and work in your restaurant for free I, I just really want to be in your restaurant I just had a, a hunch that this is what I needed and he sort of backtracks and in a very in a very, very warm yet firm way says, I'm sorry, I just, I just, I don't hire culinary students. Uh, there's no room in my kitchen and this is not the way I do things. And essentially saying, I don't have a job for you. Mm -hmm. And I reiterate, well, I just want to be very clear. Uh, I want to work in your kitchen for free, no cost. If it doesn't work out for any reason, kick me out the back door. I just, I love the opportunity. And, and he was really taken aback by Number one, I wanted to work for free because that's that's an old school European notion of apprenticeship. And lo and behold, he agreed to it, and um, and so that started my year and a half apprenticeship. So every day I would go after school at three o'clock and work in the restaurant until twelve thirty, one o'clock in the morning. Um, uh, more days than not, in the in the basement of the restaurant, doing prep for the kitchen upstairs, and just absolutely loving every minute. Uh, Hubert Keller is, uh, is absolutely one of my mentors and 
I wouldn't have known this until much further in my career, but what Hubert showed me was, um, was uh, a calm demeanor and a, um, and a very commanding yet, yet professional way to run a kitchen. Managing a kitchen by respect versus managing by fear. And I saw both in my career. Hubert was one of the rare instances that mastered the art of managing by respect, mutual respect. Um, so that really formulated my foundation for my apprenticeship and professional career, and then it just kind of launched from there. Amazing, it's an amazing <laughs> start. So tell me about, continue it on, I'm, I'm curious, uh, obviously you worked in other restaurants, kind of take me through the kind of the highlights of the, of the food part of your career, and at what point does wine enter into it? So backtrack a little bit, and um, so when I was in that French hotel in Southern California, again, 14 years old, and then 16 is when I was hired on as a, as a paid cook. Um, that's really when I started becoming interested in wine. And what I was interested in is um, the mystery of wine. How, how, does, how does it go from something as humble as grapes to this uh, this admired and this um, this touted beverage. I mean, I was just fascinated by it. And when I was working as a cook at the Meridian Hotel, the uh, the uh, food and beverage director of the hotel, uh, who I, I still know today, he, he's absolutely one of my mentors in the sense that his name is George Blankensee, and George. Uh, saw this interest, and I think he got a kick that the 16-year-old kid is asking these questions. And again, I would see George come in, and this is when the kitchen staff was first arriving, and I would see George come in, and he's loading these beautiful wooden crates into the cellar, and he's stocking wine, and he's meticulously organizing, and, and again, I'm fascinated by this. And so I asked George if I could come in early before I started in the kitchen and just help him, ask some questions. Well, shortly after that, uh, George started inviting me to distributor tastings, you know, and he would say something off the cuff, and he would say, hey, Andrew, on Monday, uh, there's this amazing tasting, um, and you're welcome to join. You're welcome to join, you know? And so here I am, a 16-year-old kid, given permission to learn and, um, and explore this curiosity I had. And I remember this very fateful uh, tasting that George invited me to, and it was all these winemakers from Napa Valley who were in Southern California. And I walk up to a table, and, uh, and I put my nose in a glass of Carneros Pinot Noir. And keep in mind, I'm a 16-year-old kid, and I look at the winemaker who's behind the, the table, and I say, this is, this is the most beautiful Pinot Noir I've ever smelled. <laughs> Amazing and he doesn't blink an eye. Now I look back and I say, he should have said, get, get out, get away from my table, kid. You know, I got I, a bigger fish to, to talk to here, right? Didn't blink an eye, and he just said, well, thank you for saying that. You know, Carneros is a very special place, and he explained, and, the, and so again, permission to ask questions um, was really the key, and I never forgot that. And so flash forward to when I'm in culinary school, uh, there's a wine education component in the school. You know, it's a two-week class, and it's really talking about appreciation of wine and breaking down regions of the world and varietals and this and that. You know, basic wine education. 
But there was a, there was a uh, every Saturday, the school rented this luxury um, coach bus. And for $20, for $20, you got a seat on the bus and they took you up to Sonoma or Napa and you visited three wineries. Lunch is included. At one of the wineries, they're gonna cook this incredible lunch. Every Saturday, you know where I was. I'm on that bus. And about the third time I'm on this bus, I look around and the bus has six people on it, eight people, 10 people, and it can hold, you know, I don't know, 80 people. I was just amazed. I mean, why isn't every, everyone on this? So I went to the instructor and I said, do you mind if I invite some friends? You know, let's, feel, let's, let's get some more people on this bus because this is incredible. And he's like, oh, please, right? Like, we gotta try to pay for this somehow. So one of these trips, we end up at this winery in Napa Valley, and the winery chef is cooking this incredible lunch out of the wood-fired oven. There's a kitchen right in the tasting room off to the side. The winery chef is cooking these wood-fired pizzas and beautiful salads from the gardens at the winery. And we're sitting at this incredibly beautiful uh, farm table in the middle of the cellar, and the wine, the winemaker Vintner is talking about the wines, and we're drinking this beautiful wine. And I'm walking out of the winery, and I read this plaque right by the front door that's talking about that every year, this winery, so Robert Sinsky Vineyards, takes uh, a handful of their wine club members to Baja every year. And they spend their day kayaking the Sea of Cortez, and the winery chef is cooking at night for everyone, and they're drinking beautiful wine on a sandy beach on an island in the Sea of Cortez. And I say to myself, that's gotta be the greatest job in the world. I want this job one day. This is gonna be my job one day. Well, it turns out, as my memory started kicking in, that vintner, Robert Sinsky, was the guy that was in Southern California that was behind that table. That was the guy that encouraged my knowledge of wine. So I graduate culinary school, and I go to France for the first time, and um, with my then girlfriend, we, uh, through one of my instructors, um, we get to go live and work in France for three months. And um, that sort of accelerated my interest in French cuisine and French culture and French language. And it was just an amazing experience um, for three months. It was sort of a continued education for my school. Came back to the United States and decided to um, move to Los Angeles. Um, you know, I could live with uh, my mom for a short period, find a job. Um, and I, I, I pick up a guidebook, uh, Goi Mio guidebook, and I look at the top restaurants in Los Angeles, and the top one is a restaurant called Patina. I pick up the phone, very naive, pick up the phone, <laughs> ask for the kitchen, ask for the chef. Chef owner's on the phone 30 minutes later, and I ask him for, uh, if I could have an interview. The next day I'm sitting in his office, and, um, <laughs> you know, I, I thought I had a, at that point a, a pretty resume, you know, and I had it printed out on beautiful paper and I was a little full of myself as a young cook with ambition and I'll never forget, he comes out of the kitchen with a plate of his lunch, you know, he's gonna eat lunch while he's interviewing me and 
hand him my resume and I'm, I'm dressed, you know, suit and a tie and he says, follow me, you know, he doesn't even look me in the eyes, follow me in my office. So I follow him in his office and puts his resume on his desk and he puts his plate of food on top of it, <laughs> taking it back and I, you know, and uh, yeah, so, so what are you doing here? So I, I, I read about your restaurant and, and uh, I'd, I'd love to work for you. And he said, well, okay. Um, looks, at, looks briefly at my resume, sees a little bit of experience and you know, quickly sort of brushes that aside. And he says, okay, um, how much money do you want? And I said, I, I think I blurted out something like $25,000 a year or something, you know? And he laughed at me and he says, my chef doesn't even make that much money. <laughs> and he said, no. You know, uh, he said, you're, you're, you're gonna make $10 an hour, I think it was, and, and we'll see you tomorrow, and you'll work with us for a day, and let's see if it works out. We have to like you, you have to like us, and, 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 and then we'll go from there. And so uh, I came back the next day, and um, still remember that night. It was, it was just an incredible night, you know, thrown into the fire, and somehow I had enough confidence to jump on the line and, and cook with, uh, with, with the team and you know, was, hired, uh, was hired after that and spent um, just under two years in that kitchen. And you know, that was by far the most, um, by far the most brutal kitchen I've ever worked in. He was by far the most demanding chef I ever worked for. Uh, very, very tough man, um, uh, but taught me a lot. And I would say his name was Joachim Splichal, and that was Patina. What Joachim taught me was, uh, was really the hard lesson of running a business, running a smart business. He had uh, a couple of restaurants that failed before Patina. And um, he told me flat out, I'm not gonna fail this time. I'm gonna do whatever it takes to succeed. And I went to him, this was probably a couple months into my working there, and I was really disillusioned. I was really disheartened by, um, I was getting my butt kicked every night. Every night that kitchen was war. We were cooking um, some of the most inspiring food, and yet the, the, the kitchen equipment was just a disaster. You know, famously he says he opened Patina with $500,000 that he gathered from investors and he put 498000 into the dining room and the <laughs> kitchen. You inherited the equipment from the restaurant before. Make it happen. No excuses, make it happen. You know, we had burner grates that were broken and so your saute pan is, you know, so you're piecing this together to get things, you know, um, uh, you know to cook properly and oven springs that were broken for, you know, months. And so, you know, you're keeping the oven closed with tongs and, you know, and you can imagine, I mean, a busy night where we're four people on this line, there was hot appetizers to my right. I'm the fish chef. There's a sous chef and his assistant behind him in the pantry. So there's five people um, on Saturday nights, we were doing 225, 240 covers. It was absolute war. And, but it taught me some really, really important lessons. You know, I came from, again, the Meridian Hotel that was, um, it was a vanity project. You know, the, the restaurant did not have to make money because the money was in the rooms. And so, you know, at that restaurant, the Meridian, they were 
eight to 10 people in the kitchen. And at times we were cooking for 12 people. It didn't matter, you know, and probably running a 50% food cost. No one questioned it, you know, and God knows how much you're paying the consultant for France. Hubert Keller was, uh, was a guy that was a master marketer. You know, Fleur de Lis was open six days a week, and on the seventh day, Hubert was always doing a promotional dinner somewhere. He was a master at promoting the restaurant and himself as a brand. And that's why every single night, it didn't matter if it was a Tuesday or a Saturday, Fleur de Lis was 180 covers. Amazing. I mean, amazing, well-oiled machine. And to watch the cooks at Fleur de Lis move, it was like a Swiss clock. There were no wasted movements. The kitchen was silent and it was just so well oiled. Patina was more hardcore. It was, it was, just, um, it was just bare bones, but the, the standard was so high. So that led me to an opportunity where I, at two months, I made an appointment with Joachim at Patina, ready to quit, absolutely ready to give my resignation. And I said, Chef, listen, I think we just have to call a spade a spade. I don't think this is working for you, and it's just not working for me. Um, I don't think I'm being successful. Um, I just couldn't get my bearing. I was just getting my butt kicked every night. And he laughed at me, and, and not in a disrespectful way, but he, he understood what I was saying, and he said, Andrew, Listen, I'm doing what I'm doing here. I'm being playful with humble ingredients and I'm, and I'm making those humble ingredients in, in exciting ways. We used to jokingly call him Mr. Potato Head because he, he, could, he could prepare potatoes a million and one ways, but in incredibly exciting ways. Um, and then there were the luxury ingredients you know, sprinkled in, but he had to use the humble ingredients with a little sprinkle of this stuff in order to bring money to the bottom line. And he said, so I've learned my lessons that I'm not gonna fail like the other two restaurants fail. And you need to learn this lesson. And he said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you a challenge. You and I shake right here, two men, we shake. You give me two years, I'll help you go anywhere in the world you wanna go. I, I didn't think I was having this conversation. I literally thought I was walking out. Two weeks notice, finish out my reign, and he said, where, where would that be? Where would you want to go? And I said, I'd, I'd love to go back to France. I, I love France. I, I want to I learn the language more. I want to cook in France. I don't even care where that is. Maybe date a French girl. I don't know. That, that's just where I want to go. And, he's, and he laughs and he says, that's, that's where I come from. I know everyone. That's what you want to do? Done. Do we have a deal? I said, yeah, absolutely. You know. Then I walked out of his office and I said, oh shit, what did I just do? Um, but that was the turning point. It was a turning point that he gave me this green light of, I believe in you. And I think you could do more than you think you can do. And so that was the turning point that actually started a really successful chapter with him at Patina. And with Joachim, what was interesting is he takes three weeks off in August. That's his summer vacation. He takes three weeks off and he goes to France. So I knew his trip was coming up. And so I made an appointment with him and I delivered a stack of resumes to his office. He was kind of surprised and he said, well, what are these for? 
And I said, come on, you, you remember our deal. We're coming up to two years. And he laughed and he said, okay, I, I remember. Let me see what I can do. So he came back from France, could not wait to see him. And I think I cornered him as he pulled up to the restaurant first day back and I said, so what did you find? You know, where, where am I going? And he said, I think I got you a job. And I said, what, you know, honestly, I didn't care where. I was thinking of a very humble restaurant in the country and, and it didn't matter. I just wanted to go there and learn the language and be in France. And he blurts out a name of a hotel and a restaurant that he got me a job. And again, it flew over my head. I walk into the kitchen and all the other cooks turn around. They said, what do you say? What do you say? Where are you going? And I blurt out, he said something about Monaco and the Hotel de Paris and, and <laughs> everyone literally drops their knives and looks at me and says, do you know where that is? And I said, do I care? I said, that's Alain Ducasse. He, he's the youngest chef to ever win three Michelin stars, only chef to ever win three Michelin stars in a hotel. Um, you're going there just a couple years after he won three Michelin stars. Do you know people would kill to cook there? So now the fear of God is setting in that what did I sign myself up for? And that month that I was told that news, there was a Wine Spectator cover with Alain Ducasse on the cover. And it's this picture on the cover and the, the title says, world's best chef question mark. This is where I'm going. Not only am I going, do I have to succeed, but I have the weight on my shoulders of, I'm representing Joachim. I'm being sent by the Patina Group. So, Five weeks before I'm set to get on the plane and go to France, I'm in the kitchen cooking, and it's Tuesday afternoon. Joachim always showed up to uh, expedite service. Tuesdays he was always in an extra bad mood because he gets the financial reports from Patina and the bistro he just opened, Pinot Bistro. He's always in a bad mood. Because again, he puts so much pressure on himself that I'm not gonna fail. There's always something in a profit and loss statement that is not to your liking. So Joachim always comes in through the rear back door of the kitchen, which was where he parked his car. And he walks past hot app station onto the left and he walks past a trash can. On the way past the trash can, he glances and he sees a little tail piece of fish that I had thrown out. A little piece of striped sea bass, a little tail piece. And he sees this piece of fish in the, in the garbage can and he picks it out of the garbage can and he said, who threw this out? Red-faced, irate. That's where my money's going. Who's throwing out fish? Oh, this is not gonna be good. And I take a deep breath and I said, and I, and I walked over and I said, chef, that was me, I threw that out. And he just completely unloaded on me. This is why my restaurant's not making as much money. You throw a carrot out in France, they'll murder you. And you're throwing out fish and he just on and on and on and on and just laid into me. I'm a young cook, you know. I, and my mistake was I talked back. 
And I said, Chef, I tried to explain what happened, but he just wasn't hearing it. And I said, Chef, uh, you know, I, ha I, have, I have to be honest with you, there's a, there's a sheet tray of uh, overcooked salmon from a catering event in the walk-in. Um, I understand what you're saying, but I don't think that this little piece of tail of the fish is, is the problem. <laughs> he said, pack up your knives and get the fuck out. That was it. And he said, and don't you, don't you, don't you think for a second I'm sending you to France. I'm canceling that. There's no way you're going to go and, and, and disrespect me and embarrass me in France. I'm completely devastated. I've worked two years, blood, sweat, and tears. I'm devastated. I leave the kitchen. And what had happened with the fish was, you know, again, we were working with some pretty, pretty shabby equipment. There were refrigerated drawers, and the inserts in the drawer where your portion, portion fish was, the dividers were, were really loose. And so what had happened was a pan fell to the floor, and this little piece of fish leaped out of the pan <laughs> and landed on the, the kitchen mats, which were frankly disgusting. What am I going to do? Beside the point, I'm fired. I'm not going to France. Luckily, at the time, my girlfriend at the time was working in the pastry kitchen at Patina during the day and working at night at a restaurant down the street. And I begged Mary, I said, please, please, if you see Joachim, if you pass him in the hall, just tell him I'd love to have a conversation, not for my job back, not for anything. I just need to apologize. I was out of place. So a couple weeks later, finally got a, a, an appointment to have a phone conversation. I was harassing his assistant for every day, every day, every day, every day. I gave him the message, I gave him the message, I gave him the message. Finally, Mary cornered him in the hallway and he said, I'll call Andrew tomorrow. And it was the most amazing conversation because number one, I said, listen, no excuses. I messed up and I apologize. Um, I should have never have talked back. And the miraculous thing that happened after that is he apologized to me and he said, listen, I was, I was having a bad day. Um, you're a very talented cook and I would never, ever not send you to France and not uphold my end of the bargain. I never sent that message that you're not going. They're expecting you. Get on the goddamn plane. <laughs> but before you go, I want to meet with you. And so we met at the restaurant one afternoon we sat down and had a glass of wine, and he looked me straight in the eye and he said, don't fuck this up. You're the first that's going from the patina group, and I hope more after that, but you're the first. And so that started my journey in uh, a year apprenticeship, um, unpaid. You know, the, the deal with, um, I don't know if you can do this day actually, but you know, the deal was, it's unpaid. Um, it's an honor to be there, and it absolutely is. Um, at that at that point, and even today, I'm sure Alain Ducasse has a stack of a thousand resumes. People would pay to work in that kitchen. You have one of two apprenticeship roles in that kitchen. Everyone signs on for a year, and of course, it's unpaid. What would we pay you for? 
you know, you're starting out the bottom. You're useless to us uh, until we tell you you have some work to the kitchen. Um, but the amazing thing about this situation was, number one, I went there with no money. I had no money. Um, uh, you know, a family member gave me miles to, you know, to get there on, a, on, a, on, on you know, to France on an airplane. And the hotel had a room for me. In the hotel, it was basically like a broom closet with a bed and a makeshift shower. And I ate in the cafeteria for free in the hotel, the employee lounge. It was amazing. So here I show up in Monte Carlo, Mon Monaco for a year. And it's literally like showing up at Disneyland. You're cooking with the most amazing equipment imaginable, produce that's foraged just for the restaurant, fish that was caught that morning by a fisherman that's just for the restaurant, 32 cooks cooking for 80 people maximum. <laughs> maximum, 32 cooks. And my goal for the year, my only goal was to be in some way, shape, or form an integral part of the kitchen, whatever that means. I want to be someone that is not a burden. So that put the pressure on me to really learn the language and be at least fluid and conversational so when you're being spoken to in the kitchen in the heat of the moment, you can respond. Lo and behold, six months into my one-year experience, on payday, everyone got, got a check but me, of course, an envelope shows up with a check and with money. I said, why? Well, it's got to be a mistake. So I made an appointment with, with, uh, with Alain Ducasse, who, who uh, at that time um, only had this one restaurant. That was the amazing thing. So Joachim, when I signed out of Patina, Hubert Keller at Fleur de Lis, all of them only had their one restaurant. That was their baby. That's the flagship before they started expanding. And that's really important because I, I got the full effect of their ambition in that bottled up in one restaurant. So this check shows up and I'm baffled. So I make an appointment to uh, speak to Mr. Ducasse. And a week later, the phone rings in the kitchen and the chef de cuisine says, Andrew, Mr. Ducasse is ready for you. I had forgotten that I made an appointment. And it's kind of like being called into God's office, right? I mean, I, I hadn't even spoken to him yet. I mean, he would come through the kitchen and he would whisper to his chef de cuisine or you know, the head guys in the kitchen. and. He certainly didn't speak to people like me. I walked to his office and uh, passed his assistant into his office and, um, and I just started thanking him profusely for the experience. I'm like a kid in a candy store. I can't believe I'm in Monaco. I can't believe I'm living here. I can't believe I'm cooking this kitchen with, I mean, everything. It was out of body experience. And he's completely taken aback and he said, you're thanking me? You're working for free, you're scrubbing my kitchen top to bottom two times a day. You're working 16 hours a day during the season, seven days a week. You're thanking me? I mean, all I hear are complaints from young cooks. And I said, well, I absolutely think, you know. And I said, by the way, there was a mistake. This, this, uh, this check showed up. And he said, yeah, a little, little cigarette money. I figured you could use a little something. <laughs> And I said, chef, I don't smoke. 
He said, I don't care what you spend it on. It's just a little something, you know? I'm blown away. So I'm walking out of his office and he said, by the way, I'll see you next week in Los Angeles. And I think my French is rusty and I misheard something. He said, talk to Helen, my assistant. She'll tell you about it. And, um, and I said, Helen, Mr. Ducasse says something about Los Angeles. She said, yeah, you're, you're going to Los Angeles with Mr. Ducasse, with two other people from the kitchen. He's recreating the Louis Cans, the three-star Michelin restaurant at a restaurant in Los Angeles for a week. It's a promotional dinner, and you're one of three people going with him. Well, I just moved from Los Angeles. So this is a great sense of pride that I'm going with this small team from the restaurant to do this in Los Angeles. And that was, imagine that we're three people from the restaurant cooking with their restaurant staff, and we're cooking lunch and dinner every day, 200 covers lunch and dinner every day. We're trying to recreate food that 32 people did for 80 people maximum. It was an insane week. But that began uh, one of four trips I took with him around the world um, to recreate his food. And how I ended up one of three people on those trips just absolutely baffles me. Um, but it was, it was a really important lesson. Um, so my year was, uh, again, just an incredible experience. From there, uh, moved back to, um, to the States and uh, really wanted to, at that point, I really wanted to live in wine country. I, I, I grew up partly in the Bay Area and was always fascinated by Napa and Sonoma. And, and so my now wife and I uh, moved to Sonoma. And I, I, I wanted to take a step back from the intensity of what I had been doing for many years and kind of reevaluate where I was. So I did something pretty amazing. I, I, I was really proud of this, uh, this chapter that I signed on to be a, a chef um, for a private high school for at-risk at youth. And what I, what I did was um, create a culinary program, a training program, where I would have interested students come through the kitchen and spend a week with me and much like I was given a glimpse of what, what were the expectations, what does a professional kitchen look like, try to give them a glimpse of that, but these were kids that were court-ordered to be in this private high school. You know, they had gotten in trouble. Their life was going in the wrong direction. And when I signed on to this, I convinced the executive director that all the counseling in the world is great and, and obviously very necessary. But if these kids don't learn how to nurture themselves and how to feed themselves properly with good nutritious food and, and how to cook basic, um, basic dishes for themselves, I think you're missing a key element. And so I spent a year um, uh, mentoring some, some uh, you know, high school kids and created an on-site organic garden that we cooked from. And, and again, because of my lessons from Joachim, um, you could imagine the budget was pretty minimal at the school. I can't remember what the number was, but, um, but I cooked for not only the 20 students, but all the staff, and always came in under budget. With the, with, the, with the meager funds I was given, 
you know, I was buying whole fish out of Bodega Bay, whole albacore tuna for a dollar a pound. And, and so part of the program was if the kids spent a week with me um, and it was successful and they accomplished tasks, I would take them out for lunch anywhere they wanted to go. And that came out of my food budget. And um, so pretty amazing. I was really, really proud of that. From there, I moved over to Napa and spent the next two years uh, as the winery chef for Robert Sinsky Vineyards. So that was the job that eventually became my job. And how that came to be is uh, my, my wife and I were just on our weekend from Sonoma over to Napa, and I can't even tell you why I picked up the Napa Valley Register, and I went to the Wan ads. I wasn't even looking for a job, I just curious. I still have this ad. This ad says, ultra premium winery seeks winery chef, fax number. And I look at Mary and I say, that's Sinsky, I know it. I have to go home now and fax my resume. Went home, faxed a resume, 20 minutes later, Rob Sinsky calls me and says, Andrew, <laughs> I got your resume, beautiful, we're doing an event tonight. Would you want to come and cook with us and let's just have a conversation? And that's how I got that job. <laughs> and it was the most amazing two years, establishing gardens at the winery. Uh, my job was to, um, to cook from the garden. And, and my only job, as Rob said very early on, take your ego out of it. Your job as a winery chef is to show off the wine, not the other way around. So you meet every morning with the taste room manager, you, you, you see what wines he's gonna feature and pour for people, you cook to show off the wine. And that was a really, really key lesson for me that, you know, I think a lot of times things are done in reverse and they should. Um, a lot of times chefs create the dish and they hand it off and say, pair something with that. You can't change the wine, the wine is the wine but you can tweak the dish to show off the wine in the best light. And I think that's really, really key. Um, so amazing two years um, in Napa Valley. Loved living there. Um, truth be told though, living in a place like Napa Valley, this was in the late 90s, 97 to 99 was when I was there. It was really, really apparent to me that it was very, very difficult, if not impossible, to plug yourself into this machine that is the Napa Valley. And so I just had this yearning that I needed to continue to grow myself. This wasn't the place that feels natural to me to cement myself down. I was young at the time. I was in my, my uh, mid-20s. I wasn't ready to settle down, but I just didn't feel like that was a place that I could really put roots down. So I was single at this time, and, uh, and I wanted to shake things up and do something a little crazy. I had nothing hold me back. I had my cat and a few personal belongings, and I wanted to just do something crazy and, and move. I want to stay in the United States, but I wanted to move somewhere that would kind of push me personally and professionally. And, and this was the first time in my professional career I thought that I had the foundation of experience and the voice starting to have my own ideas of dishes and flavor combinations. I felt like I was ready to take on my first kitchen as a chef. And so I found this, um, 
I found this restaurant in Vermont, in the middle of nowhere, beautiful, beautiful uh, town in Vermont, Woodstock, Vermont. And I asked myself, you know, as I was thinking, well, okay, if I was to conjure up the perfect situation, what would that restaurant look like? The first thing that came to mind for me was a restaurant that's dinner only, 40 seats. Um, that's, that'd, be, that'd be perfect. But I knew at that point that not only does that not exist, but that's not a viable business. <laughs> that doesn't make money. But lo and behold, on a, on a chef job board, I see this ad for a National Historic Landmark Inn with a restaurant in Woodstock, Vermont. It has a 40-seat restaurant that's dinner only, outside of cooking breakfast for the guests, but it's dinner only, looking for an executive chef. Couldn't believe it. I like conjured this up from the universe. <laughs> Faxed my resume. The owner asked if I'd be interested in flying out to cook for him, which I did. Um, again, very generous friend uh, who, who had some airline miles to help me get there. I flew to Vermont and um, cooked for the owner and got the job. And that was my two and a half years in Vermont. Um, really, really uh, important part of my professional career. Um, you know, one of the pinnacles of my professional life in that I was kind of spreading my wings. Really tough personally. I really had no personal life because I threw myself into the kitchen. And, um, but very quickly on found that my creative outlet, my counterbalance to this rural town, not a lot of exciting food happening around me, but I would spend my you know, two days off, I would be in Boston or New York City, three hours or four hours away and get that vibe of the city and that inspiration and eat and um, and you know when my two and a half years came to a close I I, I met my now wife Michelle and um, uh, who was living in Manhattan and she really showed me the real Manhattan the real New York City and um, and she was an incredible inspiration Michelle at that point had lived in Manhattan for 20 years and um, it was serendipity, you know, I always wanted to live in Manhattan and work there. As a cook, for me, that's the pinnacle. Um, you know, the adage, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. I mean, it's really true. You know, the restaurants and the competition and the, the level that you have to be at to cook at a great restaurant in Manhattan is, is, is pretty inspiring. So I wrapped up my position in Vermont and moved to Manhattan for a year. And my goal was to plug myself into the best restaurant I could. And again, serendipity, um, I had heard through the grapevine that David Boulay was relaunching his flagship restaurant, uh, which he closed in the mid-90s. He was relaunching that. This is, uh, this is now in uh, 2001 or 2002. The amazing thing about David Boulay is when I was a young cook, a lot of the chatter in the kitchen from my higher-ups, the, the senior cooks and sous chefs, um, a few of them had cooked at Boulay, the original Boulay. And so I heard, I heard of them talk about David Boulay in almost mythical tones, you know, his flavor combinations, his, his uh, creativity. So when I heard this, for me, it was just like, 
the universe handed me this again. And so I signed on to be be a line cook. And uh, as I explained to David's chef de cuisine, as he's looking at my resume and he's saying, so what do you, you want to do? And I said, I just want to be a part of the kitchen. Whatever position you have, doesn't matter to me. I just want to be in this kitchen. I'll give you one year, you know, because that's really how much time I want to spend in Manhattan. I, was, I always knew I was going to move back to the West Coast. And so, um, so that's what I did. And, uh, and it, was, it was an incredible year. You know, David wanted me to stay. He offered me a sous chef position, and and I, and I said, you know, that I, all due respect, I'm flattered, but that's just not what I'm here to do. Um, Michelle and I had, um, you know, kind of fatefully had been in Manhattan during 9/11. I happened to be on my weekend from Vermont visiting Michelle when 9/11 happened, and that's when our conversation really started about, you know, what do we want out of life. Um, should we stay in Manhattan? I could, I could continue on my career. Michelle had already founded her company. She could continue doing that. She loved New York City. When we first started dating, Michelle said, I, New York is the center of the universe. I'm, I'm never leaving, you know? And I was honest and said, I'm a West Coast guy. The East Coast for me was two, three year experience, but I love the West Coast. I'm going back West. 9-11 kind of changed both of our viewpoints of quality of life and, and, you know, again, what we wanted out of the rest of our lives. And so that's why the cap of one year and then what, what are we going to do after that year together? Michelle and I flew out to Oregon twice um, to kind of interview Oregon uh, in a sense of, no, in a sense of, you know, can we see ourselves living here? And, and you know, the funny thing is Michelle had her checklist of wherever that place that we were going to end up had to have. I had my checklist. You know, as a, as a cook, my checklist was, you know, a place with incredible ingredients, a wine country with an arm's reach, the coast is nearby. Um, both of us wanted to buy our first home. That was our goal. Um, we didn't want to be mortgage poor. We wanted a great quality of life. The question we wanted to answer was, where can we move to live our best life every day? Buy a home, but we're not mortgage poor, you know? And Oregon was the only place that exceeded her checklist and my checklist. And, you know, frankly, after New York, um, you know, I was now in my, I guess I would have been right about 30 you know, from 14 to 30, you know, working those hours and at that pace, it starts catching up with you, you know, my, <laughs> my back and, and, you know, everything was saying, you know, you can't do this forever. And the move out here to Oregon was really about living the best quality of life that we could live. And in all honesty, you know, I finally found a partner that, uh, um, you know, that I wanted to give uh, 110% of attention and focus to, and, and that I wanted to fight for balance in life. And that's where the inkling of, okay, maybe, maybe I should look at doing something else besides the kitchen as a job. Big question there is, well, what, what would that be? 
all I've ever done since 14 years old is cook professionally. I have no other skills. <laughs> Outside of the, the, the cashier job, the summer before I started cooking at the hardware store, I mean, that's all I've, all I've ever done. But the easy answer to me of, well, what is my other interest? What is my other passion in life? It's wine. Easy to answer. So shortly after moving here, um, I met uh, I met Andrew Rich and Jimmy Brooks uh, early on moving here. Reached out to both of them, and I said, I, I think I think I want to somehow get involved in the wine industry. And, and honestly, I don't know if that's production. I don't know if that's pursuing learning winemaking. I, I have no idea. And Jimmy Brooks uh, set me up with a couple of conversations with winemakers, none of which were willing to give uh, a shot, you know, uh, to work harvest that had no experience and all very gracious to take time to, to speak to me. But the one guy that said, you know what, Andrew, I'll tell you what, you know, come and work harvest with me. I can always use extra hands. I'll pay you a little something, but, but, but it's really about you getting in there and seeing if this is an interest. And in all honesty, after the third month, I, I, I had to admit to myself that winemaking was just not that burning passion. Uh, I'm a firm believer that if it's not, I mean, if it's not something that you have to do, it's a burning interest, you can't live life without doing it, don't do it. There's so many people that that's their complete focus and infatuation is winemaking. And that's who you want to... That's whose wines you want to drink. That's who you gravitate towards a personality. So right around that same time, um, there was an ad. I think it was the McMinnville uh, Want ads, again, like the Napa Valley. And um, the Ponzi family was looking for a manager for their wine shop slash wine bar that used to be in Dundee. And it was called the, the Ponzi Wine Bar. I scheduled an interview uh, with Maria Ponzi and sat down and She's flipping through my resume and seeing restaurants, and she recognizes some of the restaurants and says, wow, this is an incredible resume, but I gotta be honest with you, I don't see any retail experience here. And I laughed and I said, that, you know, that's a really good point, but, but hear me out. And I think I laughed and I said, you know, there was that high school job where I was a cashier at the hardware store, and, but, I, I, but I, I hear your point, but hear me out. My whole life, what I've done is learn how to, through my mentors, run a smart business. And here's what I know. Scallops, if you don't sell them tonight, they're going bad quick. That's not going bad tomorrow. But I think I have the gut, the guttural skill and intuition that I've learned throughout these my chapters in the kitchen that I think I could do this. She literally shrugged and I, I guess I convinced her and she said she threw me the keys and said, Well, we'll see. <laughs> to which I responded, listen, I want to be very clear about this. One month, two months, three months, whatever that is, if it's not working, I think we'll know. And there's no ego in this. You just come to me and say, Andrew, it's not working. Get out. And I'll say, thank you so much for the opportunity. I have no ego in this. I just really appreciate the opportunity. 
and that was the start of 10 years of running that wine bar and, and, uh, and wine shop. What I call my PhD in running a retail business. You know, and there are so many businesses that, um, uh, there's so many lessons in there of, you know, lessons of, wow, that worked and that didn't work. And what was really, really pivotal to me is, you know, I was paid a, a low base salary and was able to negotiate over the years um, a fairly significant amount of profit. That was really my compensation. That's really where I got paid. And where I think that's smart is if you as the business owner do well, I should do well. And what I insisted on is to see the profit and loss statement every month, to know exactly that bottom line of profit and where I was being paid from. And again, because of you know, what my mentors drilled into me, paying attention to details and saying, hey, that, that looks a little off, what, what's that number? And then drilling into that with the accountants and saying, is that accurate? Because I wanna make sure that bottom line is what it should be because I was held accountable to that bottom line and then yet, therefore I had to pay my mortgage from what I was being paid. And so it really, really taught me uh, firsthand that the importance of knowing expenses and how to run a smart business. It was an incredible 10 year run um, and uh, you know, at some point I, I thought, you know, I should, I should do this for myself. And uh, that's, that's where Valley Wine Merchants came, came to be, you know. The Ponzi's wanted to really focus on their wines and their brand. And over time, um, you know, in, in its heyday, the Ponzi wine bar was sort of the, the place to go to see who was doing what. It was a wall of guest wineries and a wall of, uh, you know, the best of the Willamette Valley. And of course, the Ponzi wines. And the conversation was, you know, we would line up a flight of wines and the stories behind each wine and, you know, people bought what they bought. Um, and, and so that was a really incredible educational experience to stand back and to really formulate storytelling. And it's really not selling, it's storytelling, poor wine and seeing what people buy. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what's happening. But over 10 years, I built this really incredible client database of folks that I met one-on-one -on -one that trusted me with buying the wines that they love but then recommending other wines because you like that I really believe you'll love this so I had this pretty robust database after 10 years and the Ponzi family decided that they were going to move the concept away from representing a lot of other brands and their brands to just focusing on the Ponzi wines. And long story short, um, on my 10th anniversary to the day, Maria Ponzi scheduled a meeting with me. And um, I walked out of the house on the way to that meeting and I, and I said to my wife, Michelle, I said, <laughs> well, this is either one of two things today. It's either a party, 10 years, or I'm being let go. And I'll know which one it is because if I walk into the conference room and it's just Maria and I, I know what's happening. If I walk in and there's balloons and a lot of people, I know what's happening. <laughs> you know, the experiment of 
we're going to move away from selling other people's wines and ours to selling just our wines and having the expectation that we're going to make the same amount of money uh, essentially was a failed experience, uh, experiment and I, and, I, and I told him that early on and I said this is what this place has become known for at the end of the day it's your business and I'm your lieutenant you tell me what to do and I do it but I just want to make sure that we have an understanding of what I believe is the likely outcome of this um, and the revenue started dropping and started going the wrong direction and, and they didn't need me at that point, right? You don't need someone that you're, um, that you're paying um, X, X amount of money to um, if it's a much simpler concept. And, you know, as far as breakups go, um, they were incredibly kind and generous to me, right? There were tears on both ends. We had an incredible run. I thanked Maria profusely for the opportunity to, to run her business and to represent her winery and the wines, but give me this opportunity to get to know the Willamette Valley and the producers and, and establish myself as, as me and to find my footing. So incredibly generous of, you know, this isn't gonna continue. We've decided to go this direction. We don't have a position for you any longer. But the most amazing offer out of that was Maria offered that I can take my client database with me, that they really had no use for. These were clients that wanted access to what I was tasting and the most exciting things coming from the Willamette Valley. And that was the foundation for Valley Wine Merchants, to walk in from day one and have that database of clients um, was invaluable. Now, of course, it's what you do with the database, and if you take the baton and run with it, and so, but, but I can't say that enough, that that was not only an incredibly generous offer, um, but that gave me a really great foundation. And, and, you know, this business over six years has been more successful than, um, I knew I would be a success, and I don't, I don't mean that from an ego standpoint. Um, there certainly have been trials and tribulations and lessons learned. This is my first business I've ever opened. So you, you, I think anyone has these grandiose visions and plans, and when you work for other people, you, you have the luxury of saying, ah, I wouldn't do it like that. You know, I would do X or I would do Z. Why are they doing that? Or It's easy when it's not your bottom line, and it's easy when it's not your money. What's fulfilling and scary is when you swing open the doors to your own business and you get to do whatever you want to do. You get to try things and you get to spend money on things and succeed and see if they succeed or fail. And um, honestly, I've never worked harder and I've never been happier. I mean, that's the truth. I've never been happier in my life. And that's the truth. I've never worked harder, but I finally feel like I found contentment and quality of life. And I found my purpose. You know, what I get to do every day is 
just incredible. I pinch myself every day. I walk in here and I get to be in this beautiful shop and and keep asking tough questions. I ask myself every day, how can I make this a little bit better every day? I'm pretty hard on myself. Success and where I am today is not enough. How can I, how can I keep moving forward? How can I keep um, serving my clients better? How can I be more efficient? Um, I'm a one-man show, you know? It, it all stops with me. I pack every box, I ship every box, I coordinate shipping, I'm tasting wines to decide what's coming to the shop, I'm cleaning the toilet, I'm updating the website, and I love it. I absolutely love it. Um, so here we are. It's quite a story. It's quite a, quite a route to get here. Tell me, you mentioned when you started uh, that you kind of you have these kind of grandiose visions and, and ideas to try things. So tell me about kind of the, the path from the idea to start this place, getting having that kind of database, to actually laying the groundwork and, and making the decisions of what, what your shop is going to be, what's the philosophy going to be? So I saw the success of the range of wines from the Willamette Valley um, that we saw at the Ponzi Wine Bar. And again, I saw, I saw what was selling. Um, and so I wanted to take that and expand that. Um, so the range of wines. I have 420 wines in the shop. Uh, about 200 are wines from the Willamette Valley. And what I'm focusing on there are wines that rarely, if ever, make it outside of the Willamette Valley. So inherently, those are small production, small lot bottlings. Um, you know, folks that visit from Ohio or New York or Florida, right, they, they find me through word of mouth or their friend says, you got to go meet our wine guy when you're in Oregon. Um, what an incredible honor that they walk in the shop and, and they introduce themselves and we have a conversation and, and that's where that relationship starts. And then, you know, it's really, it's really a conversation of, well, you know, tell me what, you're, what you've tasted out there and tell me your favorite wineries, you know, as much as you can tell me and then it's the ongoing conversation. And then that's really, that's really the, the core of my continuation of that relationship once I get home to Ohio or Florida, wherever that is, is keeping that hunger for Oregon wines going. Um, we all get a million and one emails a day. You know, what, why should they click on my email? Why should they get excited when they see Andrew email me? That's the challenge. And I'm really, really dedicated. I never send an email out, ever, ever whether it's a personal email direct to a client or an email to a certain client database, I never ever send it out unless it's purposeful, unless there's genuine, contagious enthusiasm for that wine. If I ever think to myself walking in here one day, I need to send an email out because I need to make some money today, it's the wrong approach. It's not the way I operate. And I think if you follow that ethos of it's purposeful, people can feel that. They know the difference. Um, the other half of the shop is, is an intuition that, that was a little bit selfish in the sense that I wanted to continue my education um, to the world of wines on a daily basis. But I also saw this at, from my time at the Ponzi Wine Bar where people would, you know, would, would 
organically say, hey, Andrew, uh, hey, we had this bottle at dinner. Could you, could you find that for me and get me a case of that? You know, the Ponzi family, for whatever reason, just did not want to, for any reason, um, sell any wines that weren't from the Willamette Valley. Um, but I had a hunch that there was an opportunity to tap into some of that. And also folks like myself, wine, winery owners, winemakers, winery folks, you know, we, we, we wanna be inspired by wines from around the world and understand great wine from everywhere. You know, when someone talks about X producer from Burgundy and they talk about it in these, these sort of, um, you know, these, you know, they, they, they build it up, you know, have you ever drink wine from this winemaker? You hear these names, you know, they're, they're, they're just the best of the best. And so I always wanted the shop to straddle two worlds, exciting wines from other places and the best from the Willamette Valley. So the tagline is the best of this valley and beyond. And during normal times, the little tasting bar behind you, during normal times, I have about six to eight wines I'm pouring. Those are both um, Willamette Valley wines. Uh, give someone a preview of some of these wines on the wall or perhaps something out of the cellar with some age on it so we can taste a 1994 Domaine Drouin Lorraine and talk about why that wine is such a benchmark wine for Oregon. And, and then that conversation can go into, well, what's the current release of Lorraine? And how is that year different than that year? Maybe the technique that changes. It's a really fun conversation. But then the other part of that tasting bar is that I might get a six pack of something just rare and ridiculous. Six bottles came into Oregon and I got a couple of bottles. I'll always put a bottle up there. The easy thing to do would be to just sell the two bottles and then go away. But the impetus of this little bar was again about community and about conversation. So if I can fill this bar with interested parties that will invest in a tenth the price of that bottle, it's 200 bucks retail, but for 20 bucks, you get a two ounce pour, and I can spread that around a little bit. Most of us aren't buying $200 bottles of wine, but, but I'd invest 20 bucks to taste something that I've only heard about. And I may or may not ever see another bottle again. And uh, that's what I love about the little bar. I would say that the tasting bar is an added bonus to the retail shop. That's what I do. This is an added bonus. Um, I never want it to be a wine bar. Uh, I don't do wine by the glass. Yeah, folks can come in and buy a bottle off the shelf and drink it here. There's no corkage. Make yourselves at home. Um, but outside of having that conversation, you know, I, I, I just personally, um, I didn't want this to be a wine bar. I didn't want this to be a lounge where people are hanging out and having a glass of wine. and. It changes the energy. And it changes my focus from what I really, really enjoy, and that's those conversations when people come in and drilling down to what they're looking for. And, and so um, that was the vision for the shop. And, and you know, I, I, I think this was sort of the lesson I learned from my mentors of do everything you can to run a smart business and I took that seriously, you know. Um, I wrote a business plan 
really in-depth business plan for myself. Um, you know, I was going to put my butt on the line, and I wanted to look at the business through every angle I could, try to alleviate any question marks that I possibly could, answer unanswered questions, um, everything from you know from that sort of vision statement of the business plan to a detailed financial model of what do I think the first year revenue is going to be three years five years out out and um, <laughs> it's pretty amazing that not only have I matched my goals of what I lined out in this very like you know when you do these kind of things um, you're kind of throwing it to the universe. I never owned a business before, and I certainly never had a business in Newburgh. Um, it's different than Dundee. You know, it's a, it's a, it's, you know, even though Dundee's right there, it's different. I've met my goals, and I've exceeded them. And so, you know, as much as I want to pat myself on the back, uh, I'm still restless, and I'm still, you know, I, I still got to push forward, and. I try not to be as hard as, on myself, but I, but I think that's something I really, really enjoy about myself is being hard on myself, but it's purposeful. Mm -hmm. I never want to wrestle my laurels. Um, that's what drives me. Tell me about selecting wines. Uh, obviously, you mentioned kind of, for the, especially for the, for the wine I value, you mentioned kind of what your goal is, is small batch, small producers, things that are hard to get outside of the area. Obviously, there, that doesn't, even that doesn't really narrow it down here. There's a lot of options there. So tell me about, are you seeking out wines? Are people coming to you with their wines more often? How does, the, how does that balance work? And, and what are you looking for as you build the collection? Yeah, I mean, that's a really, really great question. The, the reality of being a one-man show um, is uh, there's so many tasks to do before I open, I open the shop doors. In a normal week, uh, before I open the shop doors at 11, um, there's sort of the behind the scenes of appointments I have set up. Um, more times than not, folks are setting appointments with me, whether those are the personalities behind these wines, as much as possible, I wanna get to know them as personalities, I wanna hear their philosophy directly from them. The vintage that we're tasting, so on and so forth, techniques, and all that stuff that is arsenal that I tuck away that I use in pieces where it makes sense. Um, on, on a normal week, I'm tasting 40 to 50 wines per week. And that can be producers in the Willamette Valley, those can be uh, importers, um, distributors, even producers visiting from Europe. Um, and that's really, really important, not only to for me to keep my palate um, in tune with what's happening out there in the world of wine, but but it's a contagious enthusiasm, you know, meeting these folks and hearing as directly as you can from them why they're doing what they're doing, experiencing those wines. I'm very, very committed to every single wine in the shop has been tasted. So I can talk from a first-hand knowledge about that wine. Um, and I think that's really key because if I'm gonna put my butt on the line and sell a 40, 50, whatever the price point bottle of wine, I gotta stand behind it. And that's where that trust factor comes in. Um, uh, you won't see one score in the shop. I never ever sell by someone else's opinion or score of wines. To me, the buck stops with 
my opinion and my relationship with my client and their trust in me. And then the, the, the complex answer to your question of how I choose wine, it's a, it's a series of things. I mean, and it's not one thing. It's packaging is important. Quality of wine, obviously. But I want a story. I want to know that this person is on a mission. They're pursuing something. I, I want to. I want to get a sense of the craft they're seeking. Um, because, as I said, I, I don't. I don't. I don't ever think I sell wine. I'm sharing contagious enthusiasm, and a lot of time that loops in the story of why this person's doing what they're doing. I want to give my clients a sense of who's behind the wine. That could be a funny story, that could be comical, that could be serious, or all the above. Um, one of the funniest stories I love to tell is, is about Jimmy Marsh. Um, you know, Jimmy's now in his 30s, you know, 34, 35, with two kids. But I met Jimmy when he was, you know, 16 years old at the Ponzi Wine Bar. And Jimmy came in one day, and I had heard about his family's vineyard, the Marsh Vineyard, a mythical vineyard, and, you know, one of the best. And here's Jimmy at 18 years old, putting bottles of wine on the bar to buy. As Jimmy grew up in the vineyard, and he grew up around winemakers, his, his father was an incredible winemaker, and he genuinely, from an interest level, wanted to taste what people were doing, to be inspired. And I remember at 18 years old, I, I said, Jimmy, I, I know who you are, but I can't, I can't sell you this wine. <laughs> and Jimmy's mom later that day came down, Martha, and she bought the wine for Jimmy. And this was his education, right? So Jimmy and I have known each other a long, long time. And, uh, and, but I love that. I love, I love how passionate it is that, uh, that he is about what he does. And, um, you know, he has a philosophy that he is just, that's what I do, right? And, um, and, and, and I'd love to get to, wine, to, to know winemakers on that level of, why are you doing what you're doing? And you get a sense of that. It's, it's, for me, it's everything. So you mentioned earlier the kind of the, the conversation you have with people as you're trying to, to, to recommend wines to them. So tell me about what you're looking for when it comes to similarities, when it comes to if you like this, you'll like this, and then what you do with the feedback. Uh, if people yeah. do or don't like what you recommend. Yeah, and it, it, it's about ongoing conversation, right? I mean, my, my wine club is a great example of, uh, it's called the Custom Wine Club. I handpick wine for every client two times a year and how I'm doing that is asking a series of questions and throughout conversations, I wanna know, what do you want out of this? Um, tell me your favorite producers, do you have favorite vintages, do vineyards stand out? Or if you don't have answers to that, what do you want to explore? Um, but it's about the journey we're going on together. Um, I tell everyone, if, if I miss or if something's disappointing, I wanna hear about it. That's the only way I'm gonna learn and adjust. That's not very often, but when that happens and someone says, hey Andrew, out of that case you sent me, these were great, these, I don't know, I just, I didn't care for them or it wasn't my style or, 
I take that seriously, right? And, and because that can go one of two ways. You can get your ego involved and <laughs> try to talk them into why they're wrong or check your ego and say, okay, I hear you, um, and ask some other questions to drill down with why that wine wasn't to their style and do your best to move forward in the right direction. And that's my goal. You know, it's, it's really about, it's not about me. The easy thing to do, and I, I didn't have any, any interest in a traditional wine club, the easy thing to do would say to your wine club membership, here are Andrew's favorite six wines of the moment. I hope you enjoy them. Right? Mm -hmm. For me, that, that's not my personality. That's, that's, that's coming from an ego place. I think these six wines are great wines. I think you should be exciting about them and hoping that's the case. I think that people would put up with that maybe for one or two shipments and then say, you know what? I liked a couple of them, but, but a few of them, they're just not the kind of wines I like to drink. And so you're spinning your wheels, you know? The, the conventional figure for a, wine, a winery wine club is membership is about 20, 25 to 30% drop off rate per quarter. So you're constantly having to sign people up because you're constantly losing people. In my six years of being in, in, in business, I've had three wine club memberships, two put on hold, one put on hold through this whole epidemic. And that's unheard of. And again, I, I'm not saying that from an ego standpoint because I never want to rest on I'm doing it perfect. It's a relentless pursuit of clearly something's going right, but don't take your eye off the ball of keep pushing, keep working hard, keep building that trust, and keep that conversation going. Keep that, when you call, I'm gonna answer. When you email, I'm gonna answer. When you walk in, I'm here. Mm -hmm. There's such a beauty to that, and I love that. Um, but there's an incredible amount of trust that's involved there, and, and I don't take that lightly. As your, one last question kind of about the, the building, the philosophy, this philosophy, because I'm very curious about this. As you're, you're, you're obviously, you're making friendships, you're making relationships with people around the valley. You have, uh, you have producers who you are building these relationships with and, and, and holding, selling their wines here. Yeah. What if you have someone who you like and who you respect and who brings you a wine that you just don't care for? How do you handle sort of that when you have a relationship with someone yeah. and they're trying to sell, get a wine on your shelf and it doesn't work for you? How do you uh, sort of handle that part of the relationship? Well, hopefully I catch that wine before it comes in the door, right? So I ask myself a series of questions internally as I'm tasting through wine. Number one is the questions that, that are apparent, right? Packaging has to be there. Price point has to be, this is an opinion. I mean, every business owner has to ask themselves, does this work for me? And, and hopefully it works for the business. Can I sell that wine at that price? Can I look you in the eye and say, it's worth every penny? Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, I'm in the luxury good business. You know, 
there are essentials in life and there are things that are luxuries and things that people at the end of the day don't need. Does anyone need as an essential piece of their life? You can argue this either way, but I would say that no one needs a 40, 50, 60 dollar bottle of wine. People are gonna drink wine, but give them an opportunity to not spend that money. They don't have to do that. And so I ask myself the hard questions as I'm tasting wine. Can I sell it number one? Do I have the client base to sell it to? Do I think I can move the wine? The last thing I want to do is dust bottles, right? I want this to be a partnership, and I, and, I, and I tell producers that this is a partnership. I'm gonna work hard for you. I'm hand selling wine. I hand sell these wines all day, every day. But I also need you to work with me. Ideally, there's people coming in the shop looking for your wine. And what I feel when that happens is you're marketing yourself. Not only are you out there hustling and saying, here's who I am, here's the wines I'm doing, you're spreading your reputation and the word of your wines, but hopefully you're also saying, here are the restaurants that have my wines on their wine list. Here are the retail shops that carry my wines. Um, just like I do for clients that are coming into town that say, where should I stay, where should I eat, where should I go taste? I act as their concierge. I want these producers to say, you know, I love that you love my wines. Um, you want to buy from me, great. We have that direct relationship. However, you should meet Andrew because he has access to a lot of other wines and he has my wines, but, but that's where that two-way street comes in. And so, um, so to answer your question, how do I deal with a wine that isn't moving? Um, there are times where, you know, I could, I could love a wine um, there have been times where I bought a wine that, in my mind, again, this is just an opinion, in my mind, the packaging didn't match the quality of what's in the bottle. And the lesson learned there is, as I'm talking to a client that's looking at the wall of wine and saying, kind of without saying it, you know, label's a little goofy, I know, but, but trust me, drink the bottle, it's really an amazing wine. The lesson learned, and again, the hard lesson of owning a business is watch your client. And if you're paying attention, and if you watch their eyes sort of gaze around and lose focus on what you're trying to tell them, that's telling you that you're fighting an uphill battle. So likely that I'm gonna go through that wine and maybe not reorder. You know, at the end of the day, this is a business. And if you're stocking wine that is coming from an ego place and you're trying to force that on people, you're kind of working against yourself, right? Um, so if you have a choice, and we all know there's a lot of great wine out there, the luxury of being in the Willamette Valley right now is there is a sea of incredible wine and incredible talent. Um, I couldn't possibly carry every wine I want to carry. Um, there's usually a backlog of things that I have notes when I have a spot. Let's get that into the queue. Um, that's the reality, is for the foreseeable future, I think there's always going to be a backlog of let's get these wines in when I can. And 
and then let's see what works, right? Um, clients reorder what they love, um, give me feedback of what's great, and I have to pay attention to that. Um, it's a business. Um, you, you talked earlier about uh, your your location here in Newburgh and how it's a unique spot. So tell me what drew you to this place and what the experience has been like opening a wine shop in Newburgh. I looked at um, easily 12 different spaces uh, before I found this space. And I'm, I'm such a big believer in right time, right place. and, and <laughs> the universe playing a hand in how things play out. I mean, there's so many examples in my career as I told some of those stories of, there's something else at play here, you know, for, for these things to line up. When it was clear to me that, um, that that was my path to open my own shop, I was really dedicated to finding the space that really just spoke to me. And I, I did, honestly didn't know what that mean, meant, but I, I, I was convinced that when I found the space, I would know it. I found a space about midway block down First Street on 99 that I was this close to signing a lease on. I went as far as to hire a, a, a really great design build firm out of Portland. Um, Thing. I paid them 800 bucks to come out and just give me their opinion of the space. And I had some ideas and there were two rooms. Um, I, it just didn't feel right. But I felt this pressure. I wanted to open Memorial Weekend. 2014 Memorial Weekend was my goal of opening the business. And this was early in the winter of uh, 2013, 2014 that, um, that I was starting to look at spaces. And um, I was having conversations with the, the building owner, and um, she was uh, she was pretty hard driving personality. Owns a lot of property. This is just one of the cogs in her wheel, and and I just uh, you know I just felt that this was nothing but a business transaction for her. Whether it was me or someone else, here's the lease rate, X percentage increase per year. Um, you know, kind of a kind of a cutthroat deal. Again, as someone who's never owned a business before, I was bouncing these numbers and figures and structures off of friends of mine who own businesses. And uh, you know, frankly, it was a pretty standard deal for a city like Portland. You know, I'm paying the taxes, I'm doing the maintenance on the building, I'm, and you know, and this sort of thing. And and. Uh, I just didn't like the relationship and where it was beginning, the tone of how things were beginning. But yet I felt this pressure that I gotta make a decision. This is by far, that space was by far the best space I've seen so far. The building had charm. I didn't quite love being on 99. I felt like there was, it was busy, it was a lot of chatter, it was mid-block. Where are people gonna park? How are they gonna find me? I, did, I didn't like the noise, but more than anything, it was really about the relationship that I saw myself getting into, and I just couldn't quite wrap my brain around that. Lo and behold, a friend of mine, off the cuff, I was expressing frustration, I wasn't finding the space, 
and a friend of mine said, you know, Christian's dad just bought a building in Newburgh. He's a really nice guy. He's probably there today. You should swing by and look at the space. I literally drove straight here, found the space. This was down to the lumber. It was down to the studs. The building was completely stripped to bare bones. Because they were upgrading electrical and plumbing, and he had just bought the building. And I walked in and met the building owner. We hit it off. And I just knew, I don't know, I don't know why that is. I just, again, this building was just down to the bare bones. And I just knew, this is it. And I said, is it available at least? I want it, I'll take it. And he said, whoa, 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 whoa. I, no, no, I got, a, I got someone ahead of you. They're ready to sign a lease. They want to put a restaurant in here. I'm a man of my word. Um, I got to give them a shot first. I told them that it's theirs if they want it. So I'm going to give them two months to, to get their act together. I'm heartbroken because I just knew this was my space. And I was relentless. I would call them every day and I would say, is there, is there an update? I, I, I don't mean to be a pest, <laughs> but I love this space. Is there an update? No, 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 no update, no update. And um, Finally, I said, you know, his name's Doug, and I said, Doug, listen, I respect that you've given these people this time, but clearly they don't have their ducks in a row. I need to make a decision. Let's do this. And he laughed and he said, all right, all right, I gotta cut the cord. Um, and that's where it began. And, and, you know, I don't know how I lucked into the relationship I did but I told Doug and Lori, they live here in Newburgh, and, and they're just the nicest people. And I told them from day one, I said, listen, it's kind of like winemakers. You know, this has to be a two-way street. I'm fighting for you. You're running a business. You own these properties. They obviously have to be a business for you, and I respect that. I'm fighting for you because I want to be successful. I know I'm gonna be successful, and therefore, you're gonna be successful. Um, but I need you to fight for me. If you don't believe in this, tell me right now and I'll walk away. Because I don't wanna get into a partnership where it's just about the money I'm paying you to be here. And they have been, uh, they have been just really, really great partners. Not only great cheerleaders for me, but, but when they walk friends through the shop and they explain who I am and what I've done and what I'm doing, and you see that sense of pride in them. And, and that means a lot to me. It means a lot to me that they're proud of what I've done and what I am doing. You pause it for a second. You pause it for a second. Pause it for a second. All right, so, um Tell me about how uh, your wine life has been affected by the, by the pandemic. Obviously, we're, we're in August 2020, and we're still dealing with the effects of it. Yeah. What effect did it have on your, the kind of wine part of your life? I think that the lessons learned that I've really taken to heart out of um, the pandemic is being nimble. Um, and one of the most important 
pieces to the equation of my 10 years at the Ponzi Wine Bar, one of the most important lessons was always have multiple revenue streams. And that was why I put so much attention into building that client database and those relationships was, you know, it's, it is still a seasonal area and business. So there are times of the year where you could take a little pressure off of uh, yourself because you know that uh, X number of people are gonna come through the door just inherently because there's tourist traffic in the area. And then there's parts of the year where it's crickets out there. And so the important lesson that I learned over 10 years was if no one's walking in the front door and it's quiet, I could pop back to email, interact with clients and sell some wine and keep the revenue going. And so that was something that was really instilled on me. And that, and that truly was um, the secret to the success of the Ponzi Wine Bar, was taking, when I joined in the business in 2003, a, a pretty humble business, taking it from that to a pretty unexpected level, I think for the family and you know also surprised me, the amount of growth was being nimble and keeping those multiple revenue streams. With my business here, um, it's taken that and running with it. And what I'm incredibly thankful for throughout this pandemic was that I had those lanes already carved out. I was already offering delivery um, to clients, whether that's Portland or Clackamas or wherever that is. Um, I was already doing a lot of shipping. Um, I had a wine club established. Um, so I was able to really just throw my focus on those areas as I shut down for eight weeks, the mandatory shutdown. Um, I ramped up shipping, I ramped up my messaging to clients. As everyone knew they were gonna be stuck at home and the scary situation of, well, I don't wanna, <laughs> I don't wanna be stuck at home without wine. Um, a lot of clients were reaching out to me, but I was being proactive, reaching out to them that uh, we can arrange to have you know, wine delivered safely to your porch, um, no contact delivery. Um, you know, I'm still doing it today, you know, free delivery to Multnomah, Yamhill County, Clackamas County, um, and I'll just organize myself. And again, those, there's no ego in it. I was, I'm still offering free delivery, no minimums to Newburgh and Dundee. And I had folks to call me and say, I know this is silly, but can I just order one bottle? <laughs> I'll be there in 10 minutes. There's no ego in that, you know, whether that's someone I, I know or someone who just heard of me or however they found me, you never know where that relationship's gonna go. And so, um, yeah, I try to be as efficient as I can, but, but if it means I'm driving to Portland tonight before Michelle and I have dinner to make sure a six pack is on the porch, that's what I'm gonna do. So um, I feel really, really proud that I've done what I've done throughout this pandemic. Um, certainly down from quote unquote normal. I mean, I'm, I'm hard on myself. Every year I've, I've seen a 20% growth rate in my business. Um, I don't think I'll see that this year and I'm okay with that. But I'm incredibly proud that I've, uh, I've navigated these waters 
so far, knock on wood, as successfully as I have. Um, I don't think this is over for a while. And so I think we're all learning how to deal with, um, with the new norm and the new challenges. And, and I'm trying to do that smartly. Absolutely. Um, I'm curious, uh, with your, given your background, uh, California, wine country, France, uh, what were your kind of first impressions of Oregon's wine industry and how it compared to those? And what are the changes you've seen in Oregon wine since you've been kind of a part of the industry? Oh, I mean, in 17 years when I moved here, you know, it really resonates to me. As I mentioned, a lot of my mentors, when I was working with my mentors, they had one restaurant. You know, they were kind of at that launching pad, ready to expand, ready to take on more challenges and expand their, their, their empire, their portfolio. It reminds me of when I first arrived in Oregon in the sense of a lot of the wineries that have uh, garnered a lot of acclaim over the past recent years were, were at a much more humble place. You know, they, I was tasting directly with the winemaker owner and you know, now they've grown to a place where they can't deliver a box of wine directly to you. So they might have someone they hire or they might go through a distributor now. Or, and these are all understandable growth points. Um, of course, there's a, a, an unbelievable amount of talent moving here to be a part of this. And that's something that I'm continually excited about. Um, investment that's coming in, talent from Burgundy and beyond that want to invest in Oregon and start projects here. Um, to be here and witness that, I, always, I say this and I believe it, it's, being here now, and certainly back in the early 2000s when I moved here, is really like standing in Napa Valley in the late 80s. Um, I wasn't there then, but that's really when that transition of the second generation of people who founded the wineries took over, and you know the Bordeaux producers are looking at Napa and saying, wow, they're doing some pretty exciting things there, and different than Bordeaux, but we can buy land there for cheap, and." There are no constraints on what we can do there, and we can, we can do something fun that's different than what we do here. That's what's happening here. You know, when you see people like Louis-Michel Ligi Belair and, and Dominique Lafon and certainly the Drouin family, they come here because there's an opportunity that does not exist in Burgundy. And, um, and to be a, to be a microscope, part of being here now and being here on the rise. And that's what I saw that I didn't think that was possible in Napa Valley, to plug myself into that machine that in my mind had just completely sailed. Mm -hmm. um, so to be here now, I just feel so privileged to be here and witness this. Um, because I really believe 10 years from now, um, there's going to be more unbelievable change and development and exciting projects and we're here mm -hmm. we're in the heart of it <laughs> yeah, i know how you feel <laughs> what about as you look ahead you mentioned that kind of as you are looking at what do you see for the oregon wine industry over the next let's say the next decade you know not being a grape grower or winemaker um I can't really speak to um, 
the potential of growth from that perspective. I, I do, from an outside looking in, I, I do think that there are going to be areas that are untapped, um, that are now outlying areas um, that aren't conventionally thought of as prime grape growing areas, but, but we're becoming pretty populated within this narrow valley of where we think the prime vineyard lands are. And I think what's true is, and the fact of the matter is we're just, just over 50 years old of this being a real industry, a commercial industry, and, and it blows my mind how far we've come in 50 some odd years. Um, and with technology and talent and knowledge, you know, this foundation that these founding families have laid and then everyone else has built on top of that. What we can do from now to 10 years from now, I think is just gonna blow our minds. And so that's what I'm excited about. And, and, and honestly, I, I don't know what that looks like. I, I think we're all gonna be shocked and amazed. Um, but what I am excited about more than anything is the new talent that is either here or coming because of the growing reputa reputation uh, of Oregon. And it still is a place that um, is a bit of the Wild West. You can plant your flag and do something. You can still do that here. Mm -hmm. You can't do that in Napa. I don't think you could do it in Sonoma unless your uncle works for Google, right? <laughs> I mean, it's a vanity project to buy two, four, five acres of Napa and charge whatever you're gonna charge. I just don't know how that pencils out to actually be in a viable business. Um, here you can still do something that comes from the heart that you can charge money for, but I still think it's more than fair for the investment you put into it and what's in the bottle. And there's still a pretty wide audience that is excited about exploring that. You know, just last fall, um, there was a young gal who was working harvest with Antica Terra with Maggie. And last fall, she was coming into the shop, you know, on her days off. And over the, you know, over a few weeks, she would come in and we would taste wine or she would try wine. and just through conversation, we got to know each other a little bit. And she mentioned in passing that tomorrow's her last day, she's going back to New York City, going back to the real world, going back to her job. And I said, wow, you know, well, what's, what's if you don't mind me asking, what, what's your job? She said, I work for, uh, I'm part of the wine team at 11 Madison Park in Manhattan. <laughs> Three Michelin star restaurant in Manhattan, arguably, you know, one of the top restaurants in the world, for sure. And she had such a spirit about her. And she said, Andrew, um, I'll be honest, I'm going back to Manhattan to give my notice because I need to move here. I've seen the light. I want to be a part of this. I've had a great run. I've been there for three years. It's been incredible for me, but, but I'm ready to start my new chapter. So that's what's happening on a daily basis. And that's what I'm excited about. I mean, it's just, it's just tremendous. <laughs> and sometimes wine just shows up. And, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's, it's nice. It's like, it's like my workplace. Sometimes wine just shows up. 
What about as you look ahead for yourself? Uh, what do you see for yourself happening in the next year? You mentioned kind of growth until this year. What do you see kind of coming out of the pandemic and looking to the future? Keep the ship steady. I mean, no, uh, I think the lesson I've learned, um, the reaffirmation of what I'm doing um, that's working, um, stay on the course. Um, what will I do different moving forward? It's a good question. I mean, I, I, there is absolutely an evolution to what I do. Um, it's hard to think about that right now because I'm, I'm, I'm head deep in keeping the ship steady and not taking my eye off the ball. This fall, I'll be shipping, for me, a record amount of boxes um, to clients. My wine club continues to grow. Um, again, the, the amount of um, successful sales to clients throughout this pandemic equals you know, the hundreds of boxes that need to be packed and shipped and successfully delivered. That's one of my greatest joys is selling the box of wine is one thing getting it to their door, not only successful, but in perfect condition, that's a whole complex web that I love. I love this complex puzzle of doing that. Mm -hmm. And, um, and uh, it's daunting, but, but I, I really love that challenge. So um, fall is gonna be, uh, is gonna be a, a, a <laughs> fall is gonna be a marathon, but, but again, I'm just, so, I'm just so proud of that. Absolutely. Well, that's all the questions I have for you. Uh, I'd love to keep talking, but I'm keeping you from your business right now. So uh, anything I didn't ask that I should have, is there anything we didn't cover today that we should have covered? I don't think so. Right. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time, Thank for your you hospitality, for, for letting us in this beautiful shop. And uh, appreciate your story. And we'll Thank go ahead and let you off the hook. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have assisted on our oral history interviews.